And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. everybody and welcome back to another episode of wings for breakfast our twice weekly red wings podcast here on the athletic i'm max boltman with me as always is prashant Iyer. and uh one day two days after uh, opening the season with a 3-0 shutout loss to carolina the red wings came back and uh well they came back they they came back and, and beat the hurricanes four to two uh on the back of uh, philip zadina with two assists dylan larkin with two goals and i think more important than any of that um, an ability to respond when adversity hit. Multiple times in the third period, they gave up one goal leads. Uh, I think last year that would that would have killed them, and I think Dylan Larkin acknowledged that afterwards. Prashant, what did you see that was different uh, last night than Thursday, and last night than a year ago? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like you know, you you look at that game, and the Red Wings are leading one nothing after two periods, having played it. You know you know, kind of reasonably tight and very similar to the first game of the season, right? It was a, it was a similar kind of hockey game heading into that third period. And, you know, all of a sudden, 30 seconds into the third period, Sveshnikov, you know, shoots the puck, it ricochets off a of Trocek. It's in the back of the net. And and that last season uh, would have been a, a turning point for the Red Wings team. They would have kind of collapsed. They would have not been able to, you know, mount the same pressure that they had been pushing kind of throughout the game. They wouldn't have that same kind of offensive excitement. And so, you know, I would have expected that team to just collapse. Unlike last season, what you actually saw was the team continued to fight. They continued to push. They were able to play reasonably even, um, you know, with the Hurricanes in the third period. I say reasonably even because the stats were not even, but, you know, reasonably even from a Red Wings perspective that it was not as bad as it could have been. And then they ultimately got the break. You know, they they get the the late goal where Philip Zadina is able to pick the puck up right after a uh, uh, you know the power play expires and find Fabry in front of the net, and they get the the game winning goal there, and Larkin seals it with an empty netter. So just a, a huge change in mentality, um, you know, for the Red Wings compared to what we would have seen last year. Yeah, I mean, I I think watching night one to watching night two. There were small differences, but I don't think it was like, you know, an adjustment or something like that, something that was tactically all that different. I thought Philip Sedina played a better game. Uh, I thought Bobby Ryan's uh, entering the lineup allowed a, a really, I thought, much better balance of lines. And, and I, I thought they would keep Nemesnikov with those other two because I liked how um, Nemesnikov had looked, especially in the last scrimmage alongside Fabry and, and Zadina. But man, once Bobby Ryan got in there, you know, he hadn't played in, in quite a long time. Um, and I thought you immediately could see what he brought. I mean, it was it was patience, it was poise, it was smarts. 
um, and of course skill, and, and he gets the first goal, and that's really big. But it was created by Zadina, and uh, importantly, the thing that we saw throughout training camp in Zadina that maybe hadn't shown up in a big way uh, on Thursday night was his ability to get to loose pucks, get to to pucks that Carolina was possessing, and that's really what he did here. He, he pulls a puck off of a, of a hurricane stick, corrals it immediately. Uh, takes it below the goal line and sets up Ryan for a, really a great, a, a premium chance, and he buries it. And um, you know, it, it's one of those things where I don't think that it was a, a world of difference between games one and two. But when you when when you see things like that go in, I think it reinforces um, that what we what we thought on Thursday was you know a tight game for two periods, if not in, in shots on goal, at least in terms of shot quality. Um, it reinforces that, that you pick your spots and, and as long as you convert when the moments arise, um, you'll be in games. Yeah, that, I mean, that seems to be what Jeff Blaschel's system has been for the majority of his tenure with the Red Wings. And and obviously, I think last season, the talent level you know, dropped off to the point such that the Wings really couldn't keep the game close uh, to take advantage of those opportunities. But now this season, I think you're seeing you know, at a minimum, a reversion back to where you were in 2018, 2019, where you're still a bottom five team, but you are competitive in hockey games. You are able to, you know, keep the game close. You're not giving up tons and tons of grade A chances uh, to a really good Carolina team. You're almost kind of taking death by a thousand blows as opposed to, you know, a couple of big, massive, uh, you know, shots against. And I think that's going to be the style that's going to at least allow the Red Wings to, you know, stay roughly competitive in these kinds of hockey games. And, you know, let's not let's not kid ourselves here. You still look at the five on five stats in those yeah. two games. The Wings are five and five expected goals for percentage of 33 percent in both those games. I mean, they're you know, they're 10 percent worse than any other team in the NHL right now after those two games against Carolina. So they're still far from being a uh, extraordinarily you know competitive hockey team. But I think their strategy of minimizing how dangerous an individual chance can be and, you know, almost giving up a larger quantity of kind of medium to low danger chances um, allows them to stay in the hockey games to where Philip Zadina forces a turnover and you get a quick goal. Dylan Larkin gets the puck that ricochets off a player's skate. You get a goal. You know, Zadina makes another great pickup and you get another goal. And so it's, it's, it's taking advantage of those bounces by keeping yourself competitive in the hockey game. It is, and 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 they're not going to be able to do to teams what Carolina does to teams. Like it, it's just not realistic. Carolina is one of the deepest teams. They they have the top level talent. They have the Aho, the the Svechnikov, Slavin, Dougie Hamilton. The Red Wings don't have that. Like I, I understand that the the attractiveness of being able to outshoot a team two two to one over the course of a two game series. If Detroit tries it, they'll lose. You know, like they can they can try to open things up, and and they will lose that way because. The, they just don't have the the guns to play that style. But if you if you jam things up and, and you, you make everything a shot from the outside the other way and, and you try to find your spots going your way, you know, this is that's the way they can win. It doesn't mean it's the most aesthetically pleasing. I, I can imagine that uh, it can be quite frustrating to watch. I can imagine it was quite frustrating for Carolina to play, and that's kind of the idea behind it. Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly it. Like, this is not the same Red Wings team you saw a decade ago that was doing to teams what Carolina basically does to teams now and what they usually, you know, do to Detroit teams. And so from Detroit's standpoint, their point is, how do I minimize the damage? And, 
And last season, what you would see is you'd see these big defensive zone collapses, breakaways against, one-timers against, cross-slot passes, really high chances of, you know, scoring against. And so historically, when we talk about, you know, high danger chances or we talk about shots that have a high probability of going in, you know, we sometimes think of shots that have maybe a greater than 20% probability of going in. Um, In the two games against Carolina, the Wings gave up three of those shots at five on five. Three shots that had a greater than 20% probability of going in. And I think that's what you need to see from this team. They need to be able to minimize those big chances against, and I think that's what allowed them to stay in the hockey game. They're never going to look good statistically, but if they can keep that those high-danger chances away from their net, they're going to be able to be a little more competitive. How many of those uh, chances were saved by Philip Peronik on that one sequence in, in the crease? <laughs> That's exactly it, right? So, you know, the big one, the, the Carolina's most dangerous chance was the one saved by Philip Peronik in the crease. And so you look at it and you're like, okay, well, uh, that that was a big break for the Red Wings there. And, and, and that's why they were able to escape there. Um, so really, you're talking about two other chances between two games against a very good Carolina team that uh, you were able to limit. And that's the big difference, I think, between this team and, and last year's team is uh, minimizing those I mean, really, you know, even aside from 20%, even if you expand the range to 10%, you only had seven shots. Um, these are unblocked chances. So anything that was missed or on the net that had greater than 10% probability of going in the back of the net. So the Wings did a really nice job of kind of minimizing the danger there. The flip side of this is that another area where they're not like last year's team is that last year's team was really carried by um, a, a dominant top line when they were when they were doing well, they were being carried by their best line, uh, Dylan Larkin, Anthony Mantha, and Tyler Pertuzzi. Larkin does get two goals last night. He probably arguably should have had a hat trick. He passed up an open net to try and set up Vladislav Domestikov for his first goal as a Red Wing. I didn't mind it. it the game was in hand. Domestikov had had a couple of tough breaks on breakaways. I can understand wanting to help him get uh, off the schneid, so to speak. But, um, you know, the rest of the way, I, I didn't think, aside from those two goals, that this top line has looked like itself so far. Yeah, the top line has been, you know, really, really far from what you would expect. And it's kind of funny, you know, we we did our season preview and we talked about how important it was going to be to get scoring behind the top line. Um, but the top line's not been good. You know, last year, uh, the Larkin and the Bertuzzi line, they were still the one line that looked like a competitive hockey line. They were, you know, five on five expected goals, four percentage north of 52 percent. Uh, they were a line combination that was at least able to control play against the best of the other team. This season, they've been so far from that mark. And again, two games in, both against Carolina, a team that's a matchup nightmare for them. But the that line has been quite bad. I mean, you're talking about almost 30 minutes of ice time at five on five, and you're looking at a five on five expected goals for percentage of 31%. Um, that is 20 plus percent below where that line was last year. Again, note the opponent, note the sample size we're talking about, but far from what they're capable of because they should be able to hold their own against Carolina. In fact, the Wings have been almost 10% better from an expected goals four percentage with each of those three guys off the ice at five and five, which is very surprising. And I think a lot of that's boosted by the great showing from the third line last night with Sam Gagne, yep. Valtteri Filippola, and Vladislav Nemestnikov. I thought that line was Detroit's best line of the night. Um, you know, in terms of being able to consistently generate dangerous chances. But 
yeah, that line just has not looked um, like what you would have expected, at least early on. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I think a lot of people have pointed out, uh, and certainly I noticed this last night in particular, like Anthony Mantha doesn't seem to have the jump that you saw from him at his best last year. It's interesting to me because in camp, I've felt like he has. And uh, so it, it was, it's been unusual to see. I'm not someone who thinks that like, you know, a, a two game stretch where a guy isn't um, jumping off the ice is a big concern. I think maybe because they're the first two games of the season, it's easy for people to say, oh God, what happened? Like, what does this mean? I don't think it means anything. I think it means he had two kind of rocky games and is getting back into the swing after 10 months. It also doesn't surprise me that one of Detroit's like physically largest players uh, might take a couple more games to, to, to really get the legs under him. Uh, but I don't know. Like, I, I didn't think it looked, it stood out uh, in, in a negative way at all during camp. And so the fact that um, you did notice times where you're like, man, you know, Mantha would get a pass up by the offensive blue line and where, in the past, maybe you'd see him try to power pass the defender and, and take a real power move to the net. You saw him kind of delay and try to set something up uh, that way. And, and inherently, I don't have a problem with it. It's just when it happens over and over again um, and, and you're not seeing quite the, the difference maker or really you know remotely the difference maker that Mantha was last year. Um, I can understand why people are curious about it. That was the number one thing that that we got in the in the mailbox when we asked for questions today. Was what's up with Anthony Mantha? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure that it's going to be a thing we're still talking about in a week. But I wanted to see your take on it. What, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting because it is very atypical to see him do that. Uh, to see him be so passive on the ice. Um, I think the biggest indicator of kind of how passive he was is he's not shooting the puck. The guy has two shots on goal. And that that's just not where he wants to be. And I think he'll tell you that himself. You know, he was talking about wanting to put on, you know, three, four, five shots on goal a night. And, and he's got two through two games and really has only shot the puck uh, in the direction of the net eight times total. So uh, far from where he wants to be. And it's, it is a little surprising to see. I mean, you know, we, we talk about it being a small sample and they're not being, you know, a huge thing for or huge cause for concern. You know, in the second game against Carolina, you look at his five-on-five expected goals, four percent. It was twenty-two point eight percent. That's the tenth worst game of his career, uh, and and so it's a it's still a striking number to see for a guy who's usually two to three times higher than that in a lot of games. So, uh, I mean, last season he was at a five-on-five expected goals four percentage of fifty-five point four percent. So, you know, thirty percent higher than where he's at right now. And so I think there's a lot. Uh, that we need to sort out here. I agree that I don't think it's going to be an issue down the road. 
Um, I think he's still trying to find his game. We're talking about guys who haven't played competitive hockey in 10 months. Um, may take a little bit to get going here. Um, potentially people are a little uh, frustrated because you're not getting four goals uh, like you did in the season opener last year with, with Anthony Mantha against Dallas. So uh, I think give it time. This guy's an incredibly talented player, arguably the most talented player on the Red Wings. He's going to find his game. Uh, but yes, he has had a couple of rough outings. To reinforce, like I, I thought Zadina was was really good last night, and so what's the difference there? Well, Zadina's been playing for three months, and and yeah, he had that little quarantine period before camp, but um, that doesn't surprise me that that might be the case, right? Like uh, we didn't see it, Zadina was great immediately in the check league too. I think he had two goals in his first game, so I don't know, but um, n- nonetheless, it's just not something that I think merits like a real, you know pick everything apart. What could this be? And I know he just signed a new contract. It's, I I don't think it's merits going that deep. I don't think it's that deep is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, I I totally agree. I don't think this is something to get super worked up about. I think if we're revisiting this in in a week or two, and we're still talking about a similar issue and, and the top line still hasn't found their game, then I think we have a legitimate problem here. Uh, and, And you have to start to wonder what's going on with him. But through two games against an elite opponent, an opponent that arguably is one of the top five Stanley Cup contenders uh, this season, and again, is a matchup nightmare for Detroit. Uh, I'm not particularly worried as of yet. Throughout his career, too, he's shown that even if he gives you a run of four or five quiet games, he tends to give it all back and a little more when he has the four or five games up. He, he's a player who I've known to have multiple to stack multi-point games on, on top of one another. And so uh, I imagine that's still coming. He did get an assist last night on the Larkin goal. I didn't think it was a particularly pretty one. I mean, the goal itself was not a pretty one. He also could have ended up with that goal if it doesn't go off Vincent Trocek's stick first. So I don't know how different a conversation we're having if that uh, happens. I also think the fact that he uh, seemed to be the guy, I, I think, who kind of had the responsibility to go get Nino Niederreiter on the first goal Thursday night. Um yeah, the Red Wings got discombobulated there and they had numbers, but they were clustered. And I think it was due to the transition. But, um, you know, Manta's the guy in the frame when you look over at Niederreiter, who's, you know, not exactly in stride as, as Niederreiter catches that pass and buries it. I think we're seeing a combination of, you know, that image. And then you see those things I talked about on with the puck on the offensive blue line. I think it's going to come, but we'll see what happens uh, on, on that front. And, and we'll actually see very quickly. Uh, you guys might not have a long shelf life to listen to this episode here because Red Wings are going to play Columbus at, at noon on Monday. Uh, and I'm curious to see that because Carolina, where they are a super you know high-end talent deep team, Columbus does it a little different. They do have some elite talent. They've got Seth Jones, Zach Wierenski, and Pierre-Luc Dubois, whose uh, name everyone has gotten quite familiar with lately. Um, they are deep, but they also seem to play this style that I think is not all that dissimilar to how the Red Wings want to be and just high, high compete, uh, keep the pressure on. And so I'm really curious to see that as a, as a little bit of a measuring stick game for, uh, their resolve. Cause I, I think Columbus is going to test every bit of it. Yeah. I mean, I think Columbus is almost like if you're Detroit and your season goes perfectly, you, you want to almost be Columbus yeah. light to a certain extent. I mean, you just look and stack up kind of what they do and you see, okay, they're an aggressive four checking team. They play really well. They really muck up the neutral zone, not easy to transition in. I think the biggest advantage Columbus has 
you know, over Detroit is their blue line, right? You've got guys like Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski who can make great outlet passes and kind of do a much better job with transition. Uh, and then obviously they're built on a foundation of great goaltending. So, you know, that's a, that's a team that, um, you know, when I look at uh, the Red Wings right now and their current makeup, they're almost trying to be a, a Columbus light. Um, and unfortunately, they haven't really mastered it. 0-3 against Columbus last year. Uh, didn't do a good job uh, playing them. And so I think it'll be a huge test to see, you know, where you're at. It's not going to be pretty hockey. It's going to be very ugly to watch. Um, but again, the uglier it is, the kind of more you're uh, recognizing the Red Wings are competitive in that kind of game. What are you most curious to see in that standpoint? Is it how the Red Wings forwards lines are able to to stack up against uh, the Seth Jones and Zach Wierenskis of the world? Is it the just energy level and if they can keep up? What are you looking to see here? I think the thing I'm most looking to see is can the first line get back on track? Yeah. You know, you had a very difficult matchup, you know, because again, when Carolina's rolling two lines, I mean, line one is Aho and Taravainen, and then line two is Fetchnikov and Natchez. That's not an easy, and those two lines are incredibly puck possession uh, oriented. And so if, if you're matching up against those guys, you're just not playing with the puck. You transition to Columbus, the forward talent isn't on the same level. It's not a knock on Columbus. It's just a reality. Um, and so can Detroit and have their top line possess the puck more? You know, is there going to be more of a matchup situation here? Does Tortorella want certain guys? I think he will probably care more about his defensive pairings with Jones and Wierenski than he will necessarily the forward line that matches up against uh, that Manta, Larkin, Bertuzzi line. But can those guys get going uh, with their puck possession game and kind of find the heights they had last year? Yeah, I think that's a great one. And, and certainly the top line remains one to watch. Uh, for me, I'm curious about the goaltending. Does the, go- the Red Wings got good goaltending this weekend, and they weren't always tested in, in those super high danger moments. But the workload was still really high. And now they're going to go into a back-to-back here against a Columbus team that should be able to get traffic to the net. Uh, and you expect them to be tested right again. This is going to be a relentless season for the goalies, and it's why I think it's important that Detroit went out and got Thomas Grice, and, and they have a, what I think is, is a true tandem that um, you're going to get pretty consistent goaltending no matter who's back there. I think they're both over 930 after uh, one game each, and that's the smallest sample size imaginable by definition. But uh, we'll see how it holds up against Columbus because I think so far uh, it's been basically what you draw up. Yeah, I mean, the goaltending it was was really going to be the X factor between where does Detroit end up finishing this year? I think a lot of people, you know, looked at the Thomas Grice signing and said, uh-oh, does that actually, you know, if Detroit can defend reasonably well enough, uh, instead of having those Jimmy Howard games that you had last year, now you've got a guy who's been very consistently good the last three or four years. And now, granted, how is he going to transition from the Barry Trotz Islanders system to Detroit? But I mean, you're absolutely right, Max. Through two games, both those guys saved a goal above ex, uh, above expected. Uh, and if the Wings continue to get that kind of goaltending, I don't think they will. But if they continue to get, you know, even goaltending that puts them in that ballpark, I mean, you're going to see a lot of really close games and a lot of games that are entering the third period with maybe a one goal difference. And I think that's going to do wonders for the Red Wings psyche and morale that you're hitting the third period and you're not down three nothing, four nothing, five one like you were last year. You are very competitive in your games because of those guys. 
I picked the Red Wings to finish ahead of Chicago in the Central Division this year, and while I still think the Red Wings are going to be a bottom two or three team in the league, the reason I did it was almost 100% related to goaltending, as well as Chicago's health up front with their centers. But uh, I just think Grice and, and Bernie are going to be able to keep them in games to a degree that um, Colin Delia, Malcolm Subban, and eventually Kevin Lankin and potentially um, are, are just going to have a tougher time doing, not because they're not talented players, but just because they haven't had to do it yet. None of them have had a, a season in which they've ever started 20 games. Well, at least one of them is going to have to this year, and, and most likely at least two of them are going to have to. So I'm curious to see how that goes. And, and it's a big reason why I think Chicago's in for a tough season. And it's it's one of the areas I think Detroit, um, you know, upgraded the most, probably the area I think Detroit upgraded the most this offseason. So uh, that's what I'll say for me. I'm also curious to see uh, the defense rotation and how that continues to progress. Um, Phil Peronick, they wanted to play like seven minutes in the first period. He got nine. And then I thought they actually did a great job of scaling him back without um, really putting themselves in bad situations. After playing nine minutes in the first period, they actually got him under 25 minutes for the game, which is a little bit of a feat. And it's something that we have talked about on the show. It's something Jeff Blaschel has talked about. Um, It's it's just going to be tough for them to balance. He is their best defenseman. We talked about laying his body on the line. They literally keep a puck out of the net. There's no doubt that was a goal if he doesn't get in there. I think it was a goal at least two different times because he got stick on puck on one that wasn't even technically a shot. Uh, I don't think it counts as a block or anything, but it was a a, a big play. Uh, I think he saved two goals in four seconds there. So um, they're going to have to find a way to manage him. And at the same time, uh, Danny DeKaiser and Mark Stahl are throwing up red flags uh, for me. And I think DeKaiser only played like 13, 14 minutes last night. Um, I still don't think he looks comfortable. I thought, you know, in camp, again, we, I've said this about a couple different guys in camp. I didn't think it looked egregious, but I think when you see it in the live flow of a full speed game, it does stand out that this does not look like fully healthy Danny DeKaiser. I think that's a concern. I thought Mark Stahl was actually better last night, but I'm still... You know, Andrei Svechnikov had that one play on on his goal to tie the game at 2-2 where he forces Stahl to rim it up the boards and that leads to the turnover that goes to, I don't know if you call it a turnover because it's up the boards, that's a routine play, but whatever you want to call it, it leads to the Svechnikov goal like two seconds later and um, it's it's one of those things where those are two guys where I'm curious to see how they play. I did think Stahl was better last night and I actually think advanced stats wise, he might have been one of their top defensemen, he and Stetcher's pairing. Um, was out there for a lot of possession and a lot of quality chances for Detroit. But um, I'm really curious to see how they manage this rotation because they're clearly going to have to shelter to Kaiser. Um, and that's a tough aim to to meet when you're also trying to, you know, just keep Heronic in the land of the reasonable minutes. It It's going to be really tough because, you know, through the first two games, there wasn't a lot of things that looked really good. I thought Stetcher looked really solid in the second game um more so than the first and i do think he kind of carried his pairing up where you know if yeah. you you end up looking at uh the stats you're absolutely right i mean the stall you know stall actually comes in at a five on five course four percentage of 61 percent um which is you know the the best amongst defensemen on the team and for what Stetcher the total a, was that's nuts right right and, and yeah exactly because i mean we're talking about carolina had basically clowned detroit for most of the game and, and was you know around 60 some percent uh as a team. But, you know, again, when you look at the uh, numbers there, I think that's largely driven by Stetcher. You know, the Svechnikov play you you call out, I think, is key because not only did Stahl turn the puck over, he then got beat back to the middle of the ice by Svechnikov. 
And yes, it's not fair. Andre Svechnikov is 20. Mark Stahl is almost double his age. But still, you know, as soon as you make that turnover, Svechnikov immediately heads to the front of the net, puck finds a stick, and then he's able to score that goal. Um, you know, those are the kinds of plays that drive you nuts where it's just, it's a forced turnover in the sense that, you know, you kind of waited with the puck on your stick a little too long. You got your hand forced and then you make the mistake in coverage where you're not able to get back in time. So, you know, the wings really need help for Philip Peronic because he is going to end up playing a boatload of minutes again. I mean, um, you know, I think I'm looking at it, Max. He's at 25-22 um, looking at the score sheet oh, okay. from last so night. They, so, so they didn't keep him under 25. So, again, north of 25 minutes, um, that's going to wear on him, especially with all these games being jam-packed. It's it's not an 82-game season, but, you know, 56 in 116 days is going to be kind of – I think it's going to feel the same way for a lot of these guys. So somebody somewhere has to step up and help him. Um, and maybe it's moving Troy Stetcher to play with Patrick Nemeth instead of Mark Stahl so you can at least have a, a more solid second pairing. Well, to John Merrill, you mean, because Nemeth's been with her. Yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. John Merrill, yes. Yeah, yeah. Then you got the Kaiser and Stahl on the same pair, and then, you know, are you giving that crew 14, 15 minutes? Or what's the – I guess that's probably I think you have, you have to. to. I mean, yeah. because, you know, right now DeKaiser's not showing that he's capable of really playing more of those minutes. No, I agree. And I think you still have to ease him back in from this back injury – um, but yeah, maybe you do that or, you know, hey, the wings just waved Alex Biega to make way for Christian Juice. Maybe you get Juice in for some games here uh, and play some Mark Stahl and at least see what he looks like. So I think Juice you know, is going to be a few days. Um, he comes out of quarantine right. Monday uh, and then they don't have another practice actually official as a team until Thursday because it's going to be game, game, Monday, Tuesday. Um, they haven't had a day off since last Tuesday, so they got to get a day off in on Wednesday where yeah. they can. Um, he'll be skating, so that'll be good for him to get his legs back under him to be in the full swing Thursday. But I still think, you know, I don't I don't know that he's going to be ready for the Chicago first game at, at least. But I think your head's in the right spot there. And I think uh, getting him in, like I, I know people were asking, like in, in, in our comments, could Juice go in for stall? I think it's much more likely that he would go in for the Kaiser, just given how much they've clearly had to to shelter him and ease that back. And it's something Jeff Blaschel was frankly um, really clear in trying to prepare expectations for during camp. But then they kept playing him with Heronic in every scrimmage. And I was like, well, okay, I guess they're just going to see how this goes. But now we're seeing, I think what the vision was, which was uh, Heronic and Nemeth played together all of last year. They probably didn't really need the reps all that much um, on the same pair in those scrimmages. So uh, we will see how that goes. It, I'm I'm very curious about the defense rotation, and and I haven't seen Juice yet, so I don't know necessarily what he uh, will bring there. Um, what's his what's what's his uh, his deal? Do you know? Looking at him, he's a guy who's always had a little bit of excitement around his name when he was in Washington, and then when he was in Anaheim. Uh, but you're also still talking about a guy who's now kind of starting to get past the, hey, why haven't you been made it and been able to stick, right. um, you know, certain territories. So, you know, is he better than Alex Biega? I mean, maybe. Um, is he going to be a difference maker? Probably not. Uh, you know, he's a guy you can rotate in at 6'7", not going to get super worked up or excited about it. But as of right now, he may offer you a far better option than at least two of Detroit's defensemen. So um, not a not a bad guy to at least rotate in and see if he can do anything different for you. Yeah, so we will see how uh, how that continues to progress, and uh, and and who knows? I mean, it, it's 
it's going to come so fast that I'm, I'm curious to see at what point, you know, might you just try to start rotating guys in every once in a while for, for maintenance reasons almost. I know there's some guys, Hironik's not going to get that luxury. Stetcher's not going to get that luxury. Merrill's not going to get that luxury. Nemeth's not, but um, we'll see what else happens uh, there. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Do you want to go to uh, the mailbag really quick before we wrap up? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So one of the ones, uh, as I go in search of our uh, prompt here, uh, that stood out to me, someone was asking about play driving and whether it's a learned skill or whether it comes organically. And I I wanted to know uh, what you thought on on that front. And it's from Katie Lady is, is the question asker. Can someone learn to drive play or is it innate? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, one that I have not admittedly thought about a lot to see if you know, certain players can actually make substantial strides in their five and five expected goals for percentage or five and five Corsi four percentage over the course of their career. I do think there are certain players who get better and better at it. Um, but you look at a lot of the guys who were elite in that respect, or at least that we think of as elite, and they've really been elite most of their career. Um, I think a lot of it has to do, you know, with how they think the game, how good and responsible they are defensively. Um, I think that's a that's a big factor in there. And so that's why, you know, a guy like Anthony Mantha, who's consistently been you know, towards the top of uh, his team each and every year of his career, I think that's an, that's an innate skill for him. And that's something that's probably translated. But uh, the challenge with being able to decide if it's innate or learned is we don't have a lot of that good info from juniors, um, the CHL, the USHL. You know, those leagues don't really allow us to see is there a consistent kind of at every level, these guys are those guys, or, you know, once they hit the NHL, that's where it seems to come from. I certainly think you can get bumps from, you know, all of a sudden you're now the Pittsburgh winger playing on Crosby's line. You're going to get that bump. Um, but as far as being that person responsible for driving the line, I kind of lean towards it's a, something you've kind of learned in how you play uh, as opposed to something you learn later on in your career. That's interesting because I see it more as descriptive than anything else. Like I see play driving as not being like a kind of skill, but as just like it's what happens when you pile up a few different skills on top of each other. And, and to me, those skills are being able to hold on to the puck and, and, and both exit and enter the zone. Um, I think those are things that, that can be worked on, but do kind of draw on some innate puck skill and, and hockey sense. And I think it's a ability to turn the puck over when you don't have it and get it going the other way. And so when you talk about someone like Philip Zadina has not been a play driver to this point in his career, but I think he still can be one 
because he has the skill to exit and enter the zone and he's developing the uh, ability to hunt the puck and, and, and cause turnovers and get a goal in the other way. To me, those are the, the musts for play driving um, because ultimately what it comes down to is possession, right? Like what, what to me play driving means is you're someone who makes it possible for your team to have the puck more than not have the puck and, and have it in the offensive zone. And so I think of it as a descriptor of, of a, of a um, combination of skills some of which are innate and some of which can be worked on. And so I think the answer goes to like, what kind of player are, are we talking about here? Like, do I think that um, Michael Rasmussen can become a play driver only in so far as I think he can cause turnovers? I don't think he's a guy who you're going to want on, on entries and exits so much. Um, and I don't think he's a guy that you're going to want holding onto the puck a ton, but I think he can help quote-unquote drive play for a line by turning the puck over. Um, Anthony Mantha is a guy who can do it all. Dylan Narkin is a guy who can do it all. Philip Zadina is a guy who looks like he's developing into a player who can do that. Lucas Raymond's a guy who I have no doubt can do that. Um, so I, I think it's a blend, and I don't know if that's getting too deep in the weeds on it, but I guess that'd be my take on it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting question. I, I actually tend to believe it's much more of a defensive skill hmm. than an offensive skill yeah. um, in that sense of you are, you know, when you possess the puck, you're possessing the puck, but you do the, the reads you make defensively allow you to, you know, get the puck back that much quicker. Um, you know, it's almost like when you're, you're doing like NHL 21 and you're doing the be a pro mode and you're designing your, your player, it's like maxing out the defensive IQ bar is kind of what I think is the ultimate driver. And you look at the guys who've always been elite. It's the Bergerons, the Datsuks, the Mark Stones, the, the, the Ryan O'Reilly's, the guys that have this innate defensive sense yep. uh, that they know where to be. And I that's why I don't think it's necessarily a learned skill. But that being said, it's not just one factor. There's a lot of things that that kind of boil down into it. Um, you know, you look at a guy like Thomas Sitar, he doesn't fit that conventional sense, but yeah. his numbers are always off the charts. And I do think it's because defensively he is so responsible and good um, with his positioning that his line tends to end up with the puck back. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. And I, I do think it's important to note that it, it can look different ways for different players because what it ultimately is about is getting the, the puck into where in, into your hands and into the zone that you want it to be in consistently throughout the course of a game. Different guys are going to do that different ways. So I think that's a very good point. I think Tatar is a great example of it. Um, here's your alley-oop for the day. You only get one. Uh, Jack Powers asks, this isn't Red Wing specific, but what are your thoughts on a team running a power play from behind the net as a, uh, opposed to the modern day version of a quarterback at the point? I believe people such as Ryan Stimson have touched on this before. And one of those people such as Ryan Stimson is you, Prashant. Uh, you know, Ryan and I have talked about this idea for a, a long time. Even, you know, if you're, if you need to go check out his book, make sure you check out the book that he wrote on this, talking about this philosophy, um, to a certain extent. But, you know, when you're playing from behind the net, uh, just think back to the 80s. And we talked about this being Gretzky's office. Well, why was Gretzky so good from back there? It's because you've got everybody looking, you know, basically behind the net. You've got the goalie craning their net and you're taking away attention from the guys who are moving into, you know, dangerous positions. I think Gretzky was so good when he was behind the net at finding the guys who were creeping into the slot, finding the guy in the back door. Uh, and so when you do that, uh, it, it really taxes the defense to how do they keep track of where the puck is and how do they keep track of where the kind of attackers are on the offensive side. And so, you know, you look at Detroit last night, and even though none of them were power play goals, all three of Detroit's 
goals that came before the empty netter were generated from plays behind the net. Yep. And it's because the goalie's got to crane his neck to be able to see that where the puck is. You know, that he has that difficulty there. And then as soon as that puck comes out into the slot, that goalie's got to quickly snap his head back, identify where the shooter is or where that puck is going, and then make a strong push. Uh, and they get one shot at this, make a strong push to come out and close the angle. And it's very difficult to do. You saw it on the Bobby Ryan goal uh, where Zadina finds Bobby Ryan really quickly. Mrazek in one movement has to snap his head to the front, make a push out of the slot, and he doesn't get himself set before Bobby Ryan's shooting the puck. You saw the same deal on the Robbie Fabry goal. I think it makes a lot of sense. And if you can start baiting defenders to chase you behind the net, uh, you can start really breaking down the system that is uh, you know, the other team's penalty kill. So to me, it just makes too much sense to uh, not do this. Carolina does it with Ajo, right? He's their guy back there. Yeah, I mean, Carolina does it with Ajo. You watch the Capitals. They run a lot of it from the goal line. Um, you know, with Nick Backstrom and Evgeny Kuznetsov, they do this right around the goal line area, not necessarily behind the net. But again, similar concept where you've got your attention away from the dangerous areas for the defensemen. So uh, I think some teams incorporate uh, this to a certain extent, and I think it definitely adds an, another dimension uh, to the power play. And, you know, not to derail us too much here, but, you know, you, you think about the comparisons back to other sports, right? You look at sports like the NFL and uh, take, for example, the what the Green Bay Packers did with Devontae Adams to being able to get him away from Jalen Ramsey and kind of breaking down you know, there, there's all these different kinds of motions and sets and formations, and you just don't really see a lot of that in hockey. It's almost like we're just going to sit here in one formation and we're going to let the PK sit there in one formation. And how are we going to break this down? And to me, that's where you need to have different looks. You need to have the look where you're running it from the left half boards. You need to have the look where you're running it from behind the net. You need to have multiple entry plays. But hockey tends to be very fixed and like, hey, this works. And so we're going to keep doing this. But it's how do you create this motion offense that gets Jalen Ramsey running the length of the end zone twice that gets you an easy touchdown to Devontae Adams? How do you do that? And so that's where I think adding a dimension like being able to run your power play from behind the net is key to teams kind of improving their success. Very interesting. Um, okay, Chris Ripley, the pros and cons of trying to acquire Pierre-Luc Dubois. Is it really worth gambling on the lottery this year with so many unknowns? I can't tell if he's saying trading a lottery pick or or is he advocating for trading a lottery pick because of the unknowns but either way let's just take the the, the broad uh, pros and cons of trying to acquire Pierre-Luc Dubois and I guess Im- implied their uh, thoughts on including a, an, an unprotected lottery pick as part of that yeah I think uh, the way I read that question it sort of seems like the the implication is the wings would have to trade a, a lottery pick whether it's 2021 2022 something along those lines I think if you're Detroit Pierre-Luc Dubois is certainly an attractive player. I mean, you've got him two years at $5 million, um, for his average annual value right now, which is great. And he's going to be a restricted free agent at the end of that. I believe he's still 22 years old, um, and he's going to be a, a solid two-way center. He's going to be a first-line center. Um, I think he's sort of swung. The pendulum sort of swung a little bit from slightly underrated to now very much overrated when people are starting to try and pin down his value. Um, but if I'm Detroit... You know, one deal that I've kind of floated that I think makes sense doesn't involve a lottery pick. It's it's Anthony Mantha for Pierre-Luc Dubois. And you look at Columbus and go, well, why does Columbus do that? Well, 
you know, Mantha is still an elite play driver. He's a guy who can score a lot. Uh, you know, you give Columbus another goal scoring forward that they haven't really had since Artemi Panarin there. You know, obviously Dubois is a good goal scorer himself, but, uh, you know, being able to have Anthony Mantha on that team and uh, to play with Cam Atkinson and, and taking passes from Seth Jones and, and Zach Wawinski, that's another dimension. But Mantha's locked up under a contract for a handful of years at a below market value. And if Columbus views themselves as a cup contender or a playoff contender, they maybe are a team that's willing to take the the bite on, hey, let me get a guy who's equally talented to the player I'm giving up, who is under contract for longer and is at a, under contract for a below market value. And potentially that offers me some savings to go out and get some other guys. So, you know, that would be one way to do it. I don't know that I necessarily want to part with a draft pick uh, if you're Detroit, but, you know, if you can come up with a package that's not a first round draft pick to acquire a 22 year old potential first line center, I say you got to try at least. Well, you're not going to get it without a first round pick, though, you know, unless you go your route. And I understand what you're saying. Um, you know, the pros to me, the pros of trying to acquire Pierre Luc Dubois, 22 year old first line center with with upside to be even more, right? I think this is a guy who he's a six foot three. Uh, player who can play both ends of the ice, who can score, who can defend. Like this is the starter kit for the kind of two-way center the Red Wings have seemed to gravitate toward for certainly as long as I've been on the beat. Um, and and you get one of those behind Dylan Larkin, and all of a sudden you kind of have one of the things we've been talking about, which is if you're not going to be able to get an elite generational, you know, Pedersen type at the top, what you need is to just clone Dylan Larkin. And while I think he and Dubois aren't necessarily the same player, um the statistical profile of the impact uh you could have basically that you could have your 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 larkin and dubois on the top two lines as as lines that can match up with anybody and they can score uh, at the same time so um as for what it would cost i i don't know i imagine it would be quite high i mean the the team that i think most people want to connect dubois to because uh he's uh, french canadian is montreal and i think the 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 conversation starter that everyone talks about there is Nick Suzuki. And so there you're talking about another young center. And, and while I think people get too precious about players like Nick Suzuki, because he's really only a year younger than Dubois and Dubois is much more established in the same mold. Um, it's still like, you see what that is, right? And it's that there, the natural inclination is if you're trading a former third overall pick two way center, who, who's a, who's the number one center in the NHL, in my opinion, um, they're going to want another young center. And so the Red Wings don't have that to give. They, they could try to make something work with Mantha, but Columbus at that point would basically have to decide, uh, are we a rebuilder or are we going for it? And I just don't see how they can really look at themselves and say that they could go for it and succeed. They've won a couple of playoff series in the last couple of years, but have they ever really looked like a real threat? Like they're just that one player away from winning it all? Not to me. Yeah, I mean, Columbus has never looked like the team that's going to win it to me for sure. I think uh, I think that's definitely fair. Um, you know, it's all about how they perceive themselves. Um, you know, do they perceive that they're a couple right. pieces away? Do they perceive that, you know, hey, if I go out and I get a guy like Mantha who is under contract for four years and I in the next two years think I can add pieces uh, that will make this team better Then sure. Um, you know, you, you make that deal for Columbus. I I'm with you. I, if I was Columbus, I don't know that I necessarily make that deal. Um, but if you're Steve Eiserman, you're, you're sort of thinking about 
am I going to be able to maximize the value of Dylan Larkin, Tyler Bertuzzi, and Anthony Mantha as they're you know, 25 and 26 right now? Or could I almost reset my timeline a little bit by dropping, uh, you know, from Mantha being a 26-year-old to, you know, Pierre-Luc Dubois being a 22-year-old, if that's a possibility. So, you know, I think it's 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 definitely on the table to think about, but, you know, it's going to be tough. I suspect, you know, even though the deal I'm laying out is fair value per, you know, this trade machine I've built, uh, it's it's unlikely that that's what it takes to get it done, because I think, Dubois' value is somewhat inflated, um, you know, by the the amount of conversation that's going on right now, and the fact that you'll have other offers in play. So this is where we come back to the first round pick that um, that Chris is talking about. And in my opinion, I say if if that's what it is, is it's, it's a first round pick, and maybe you're throwing in a prospect or something. I think Dubois is young enough; you can justify it. Now, does that mean it's it's not bulletproof? Like the Red Wings could finish. Bottom five still with Pierre-Luc Dubois potentially, and that pick could win the lottery, and then you've traded either Owen Power or Luke Hughes or whatever to Columbus, and maybe you're suddenly realizing that you've just become Nashville in the Ryan Johansson-Seth Jones trade, and then maybe you regret it. I, but I don't think it's an unreasonable price. In fact, I think it's the reasonable price is, is, is an unprotected first from a lottery team plus something else for for a guy who was the third overall pick like four years ago and has proven why. Like it's it's not like you're talking about a, a guy who was a top three pick and it, you're not talking about Jesse Pugliarvi actually as the guy who was one spot behind Dubois where, um, okay, yeah, he was a top five pick, but now, you know, there's a ton of uncertainty around him. You're talking about a guy who was a top three pick and looks like it and, and is young enough that you're going to get his whole prime if you trade for him. So I wouldn't have any problem trading an unprotected first round pick, even in the top five for him. But you have to have, uh, you know, some some intestinal fortitude there to, to, to pull the trigger on it because you might lose that trade. Yeah. I mean, you very well could. Um, now, we know Steve Eisenman has no is not shy about making yeah. deals that will very much shake things up. I mean, you look at the Martin St. Louis deal, you look at, you know, trading Jonathan Drouin, who was widely regarded to be extremely good and and getting Mikhail Sergachev out of it. Now you compare the two and no one would make that deal uh, today if you're if you're the person holding Sergachev. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. Um, Eisman certainly has the capacity to make that deal. And, it you know, to be clear, it's not the worst thing in the world to give up a first rounder. Um, if you're Detroit, you know, especially this year with not with there not really being a clear cut. Number one, it's not like you're missing out on a huge sweepstakes like you were with last year. Um, that being said, there's still very good players in this draft. You know, Matty Beniers has looked outstanding and, you know, Atu Roddy is starting to pick it up. And, and you know, some of the other defensemen, Carson Lambos and, and Brant Clark, they look pretty, pretty good as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to do, but it, it would be a tough pill to swallow if all of a sudden that's the year you win the lottery. No doubt. I mean, I saw this comment. It was about the Lions uh, on Twitter, and I'm really sorry. I don't have no memory of who said it, but it was someone replying it to our Lions writer, Chris Burke. The Lions hired a new GM, obviously, uh, this week. Uh, and and their, their point was, draft picks are meant to help you bring talent into the organization. Most commonly, that's by using the draft pick and, and making a selection and bringing in, you know, in the NFL, a 21-year-old, in the NHL, an 18-year-old into your organization. If you want to trade that draft pick and bring in a 22-year-old instead, I don't have a problem with it. You still use the draft pick for its intended purpose, which was to bring young talent into your organization. This one carries a little less uncertainty, and I don't think you're sacrificing all that much in the way of upside. Like, you know, it, it, let, let's say that you know for a fact that that 
that draft pick turns into Matt Beneers or Carson Lambos. Well, once you've picked them, you know, does Columbus trade one for one? It's established number one center for your prospect who looks like they can be a number one center or look like they can be a top pair defenseman uh, the day, like the day after the draft. I'm actually not sure they do. I think there's a mystery box element to a draft pick where you get to, to call your shot and you get to, to dream on it and, and, and take your pick that um, is almost more valuable. And I am someone who really likes Matt Beneers. Like I think Matt Beneers should be coveted by all 31 NHL or 32 NHL organizations because Seattle will be in that draft. Um, but I'm just saying Pierre-Luc Dubois um, also kind of is the player that you're, you want Matt Beneers to be. So um, to me, I, I think it's a no-brainer. Uh, not a no-brainer. I shouldn't say that. It, to me, it, it's a perfectly fair um, request from Columbus and one that I wouldn't um, be saying is off the table. But you just have to know your risk. And, and frankly, if you're the Red Wings, your assessment of where you are on your timeline is every bit as important here because once you bring in an established 22-year-old center, you're not going to probably pick uh, too many more years, especially as Moritz Sider and Lucas Raymond come into the organization. Like You're almost saying, okay, the fourth pick and the sixth picks that we had for, for those three years, if you're Steve Eiserman, um, that's the core now, and, and you're, you're probably going to be outside of that range at that point. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's good to get the, the franchise moving in a positive direction and you don't want to chill in the basement for too long of the standings there. But these are the things you have to consider before you do it uh, for, for better or worse. Yeah, completely agree. And I think you make a great point about teams kind of overvaluing their own first round picks to a certain extent. Like, you know, again, in this trade machine that, uh, you know, Dom Lucision and I have put together that will one day be public for you guys. Uh the Detroit's got the most valuable 2021 first round pick, and it's got a value of what we call 9.7 um, when you're looking at excess value. Pierre-Luc Dubois with only two years on a contract at 11.4. So it's already, if you're doing a straight up first rounder for Pierre-Luc Dubois, you're winning that deal if you're Detroit. And you could still throw on a, you know, a second and make that uh, still a fair deal from Detroit's standpoint. So uh, you're absolutely right about that that point that first-round picks tend to be overvalued here. Yeah. All right, let me see if I can find one more question. These are, like, all about Anthony Mantha. Uh, do you got have some people do, very displeased with Anthony Mantha. Do we have anything else we haven't said about Anthony Mantha today? Anything, any points not made? How about we, this one? We, we really on, don't. Thoughts on how Matias Brome has started from Captain Slash. I think it's very similar to, to Philip Zadina, right? He's looked really good yep. in two games. I think you could argue that He's been Detroit's most consistent player in the first two games. I thought he looked great in game one on line three, and I thought he looked great in game two on line four. Um, guy really seems to play with the puck, seems to have good sense, uh, knows where how to put the puck in space, uh, and has generated dangerous chances. Um, you know, I think he was third in individual expected goals uh, in the second game, and I think he was first in the first game. So he's, he's arguably been Detroit's best forward, and I think a large part of that is you know, like Zadina, having been playing consistently in the SHL um, and playing well uh, consistently in the SHL, uh, he's a guy who I think the Wings are very happy to have right now. Here's what I'm interested in on this. I think Broma has been good too. Uh, it sounds like you, you're a little higher on him maybe than I am. I think he's just looked like a, 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 a legit bottom six NHLer, which coming from where the Red Wings were, that is a big deal. Um what happens when Darren Helm is back? Because Franz Nielsen's, Franz Nielsen's already out of the lineup. I think Adam Ernie has been 
one of the more noticeable Red Wings through two games. And he's a guy that's taken a lot of heat, uh, you know, both from us on this show uh, and from the public at large. I think he's looked really good. I think he's looked like exactly what they want the identity of that line to be. You're not taking Luke Lindening out of that lineup. Uh, is it Matias Brome or is it Valtteri Filppula? Like who, who comes out? I mean, that Filppula line, like you said, was Detroit's most impactful line yesterday. Who comes out when Darren Helm comes back in? Yeah, I mean, that that's the million-dollar question right now, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, you know, conventional sense would make you think it's going to be Matias Brome, um, which would be, I think, kind of frustrating from his standpoint, given how well he's played thus far. But you're absolutely right. Adam Ernie's been great. In fact, if you, you look at the Red Wings leaders from the first two games, Ernie's their second in 5-on-5 five five expected goals for percentage, only behind Sam Gagne, uh, and Ernie is, Ernie is one of two players above 50%. And that's kind of massively telling when you remember that Detroit was 30 some percent in the first two games. So yeah, it hasn't been Adam Ernie. So I think it does fall on, on Brome to, to be the one to come out of the lineup. But, uh, I think you have to be very encouraged with the way he played and, uh, you know, be very excited about what he's done thus far. Yeah. All right. Well, we will see. Uh, hopefully you guys listen to this before Monday at noon, because that's when the Red Wings will next play. But uh, either I will be back at you in the middle of next week with our next episode. We'll break down what happens in the Columbus series and we'll preview the first clash against Chicago for uh, what actually could be very consequential uh, divisional uh, stakes already here, just in, in what will be the third series of the season for the Red Wings. But safe to say it's in full swing and, and we'll be with you the whole way here. Uh, just while I have you, I want to to make sure that if, if you're not subscribing to The Athletic yet, we would love for you to join. You can get a subscription to The Athletic for $3.99 a month at theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast. That's a discount for you as a listener. And uh, we'd, we'd love to have you on board. We're obviously going to have plenty and plenty of Red Wings content throughout the year, prospect content for those of you who are more interested in that, draft coverage from Corey Promen and Scott Wheeler, national coverage from Craig Cussins, Pierre Lebrun, Scott Burnside. You're going to get the whole NHL. You're going to get the whole sports world, no matter who your teams are. Spring training's only a month away. We got uh, NFL playoffs in full swing. The NBA, James Edwards, one of my best friends, killing it daily on the Pistons beat. Uh, you're not going to want to miss anything that he writes. So make sure you're joining us at The Athletic, theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast, and we'll see you there. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.